Morning, everybody. We have already heard this morning testimony about God's amazing goodness through shoeboxes, stories, and there's lots more where that came from. And we've already sung his amazing worthiness, and isn't he good? Oh, Jesus, I just want to say thank you. Oh, it's a privilege to know you. Love you, Lord. Amen. You guys hungry? I hope you came to church this morning hungry. Because we're about to have a multiple course meal. Let me just give you a recap of what we talked about last Sunday. And then we're going to dive into this Sunday, all right? Last week we talked a little bit about Judas. And then we talked about the inseparable triune God. And I also mentioned that as a church, we want to set some time aside to investigate, learn, discover, and open the door to Jesus and the spirit of Jesus. Kind of like the church in Laodicea had to open the door in Revelations chapter 3, they had to open the door to Jesus so that they could have close fellowship with him. And because of the abuses of spiritual gifts and also the neglect of spiritual gifts, we want to make sure that we do that in a safe and biblical yet intentional way. And so that's what we talked about last week. If you missed that message, you should go back and listen to it because it's foundational for what we want to talk about today and ongoing. And so today's reading... Uh, we're going to see some incredibly powerful statements from Jesus. And Rhea Hebert is going to come up and read the passage for us. And I would invite you guys to help her with the reading that when the yellow words come on the screen, you just fill right in there and read along with her. chapter 14 verse 6 11 to 18 when he was gone jesus said now the son of man is glorified and god is glorified in him if god is glorified in him god will glorify the son in him and will glorify him at once my children i will be with you only a little longer you will look for me and just as i told the jews so i tell you now where i am going you cannot come uh I give you love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another Simon Peter asked him Lord where are you going Jesus replied where I am going you cannot follow now but you can but you will follow later Peter asked Lord why can't I follow you now I will lay down my life for you then Jesus answered, you will really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me 
that you also may be. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am and and no one comes to the Father. Believe me when I say that I am the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do because I'm going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. When you're at the restaurant of your choice, what's the first, and they're going to serve you like a seven-course meal, what's the first one that comes out? Pepsi? I like it. They're going to bring you something to drink. Well, I'll tell you what. Get your glasses ready. So you guys know what's happening here? Let me just, you know what? Let me just invite the Lord as, as He brings a very full course meal to us. Let me just invite him to change our hearts so that we would be ready to take it in and digest it. All right? Jesus, I ask that you would come in your own very special way and that you would open up our minds and our hearts that we would wholeheartedly receive what is written in your everlasting word. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So here's what's happening. Where in the beginning of this passage, do you know where it said he left them, but do you know where Judas was going? He was going to betray, set up the betrayal of Jesus. And Jesus then begins to explain what's about to happen and where he's about to go. Obviously, he's going to heaven and he explains a little bit of that to his disciples. And then he drops in this really bold command. Okay? And he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And it's a, he says, it's, he calls it a new command. And I want to contrast that with what we know as a summary of the old commands, which Jesus also said in Matthew 7, which he's, often we would know this as the golden rule, but it says this, so in everything, do to others as you'd have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, we would be very foolish to think that we should only apply one of those and not both, correct? Jesus said them both, they both apply. 
and we have to apply them both, but what's the difference? In a sense, it is actually easy to follow the golden rule because you can follow the golden rule and justify some harsh behavior. We can justify unloving behavior by telling ourselves something like this. I don't need to go out of my way to love that other person in the church because I don't want them to go out of their way to love me. Therefore, I'm off the hook. And I think that I've followed the golden rule. Let me make that really practical. I might say something like, I don't need anybody to buy me groceries because I have worked hard, I've learned lessons the hard way, and I have worked hard to be able to earn the money and buy the groceries that I need, and I want the same thing for that person, and so therefore, I'm not going to buy groceries for anybody else because if they would work hard and do the same things that I did, I wouldn't need to buy their groceries. And just like that, I've justified unloving behavior, and I think that I'm still following the golden rule. Compare that to if the Holy Spirit prompted you to pay for someone's groceries who's standing behind you in the lineup at Sobeys. And you just turn to them and say, I'd like to pay for your groceries today. And they would probably respond with the question, why? And you might say something like, just because Jesus did far more than that for me. That's how we're supposed to love one another in the church. Jesus said that's how people are going to identify Christians. Because Jesus didn't call us to love the way that we want to be loved. He didn't call us to treat other, way, other people the way that we're okay to be treated. It's not about justifying how we think. It's about behaving in a way that reflects Jesus. And if we love each other... Just like Jesus loved us, how will we do that? If you use the reference Philippians 2, 5 to 8, that would give you a little description of how we would do that. Because it tells us how Jesus loved us. He had all of the rights of God and yet let go of those rights to love us in a way that would cost him everything, and then to extend a love to us that we could never repay to him. In other words, he sacrificed his own best interest for ours. He didn't have to be a servant, but in humility chose to be one. And even though he knew he would get taken advantage of, that's how he loved us. Do you realize when he said this, what is just happening? We just said it. One of his own chosen disciples just left the door to go and betray him. And he loved Judas just as much as he loves you and me. And he said, here's the new command. Love others as I have loved you. He didn't love us as we deserve, but loved us in obedience to how God asked him to love us. If we love each other as Jesus loved us, we are going to love with radical humility, listening as a listening servant of God. We're going to give to people who can never repay us, and we're going to let go of our rights. 
And that is how Jesus said people will be able to identify you as a Christian. And Jesus is going to repeat that saying, this command, again in the next chapter, in the next chapter. That's a tall glass of Pepsi, isn't it? Because we could park the sermon right there and just ask this question, Lord, how can I show your love to someone today? How could I love, how could I just, just obey this? You don't have to hand somebody a tract for them to know you're a Christian. You just love them like Jesus loved you. They'll probably pick up on it pretty quick. Because they're going to ask you, what is wrong with you? And you'll be like, it's not what's wrong with me, it's what's right with me. Amen? What comes next? Salad? Well, I'll tell you what, this is a pretty hearty salad. You ready? As we keep reading, Peter makes this bold statement. He says, Jesus, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Great intentions. <laughs> Not so good on the follow through. And Jesus said what in response? What did Jesus say? Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. We know that story well. I want to I just point something out here. There's something incredibly fascinating about Jesus. He's predicting the future very accurately, timely, with an awful lot of wisdom. Coupled together with love. You know what? Jesus, here's something very, very fascinating about Jesus. He was fully God and fully human at the same time. So, does he know the future here because he's God? Or does he know the future because he's human and God has anointed him with his Holy Spirit and Jesus is just able to apply that perfectly? I, I don't even know exactly. It's impossible for us to fully know because he was both God and both human. But we can know that all of the spiritual gifts that are listed in Scripture, they're all a reflection of Jesus in some way. He is the perfect example of each one. And in 1 Corinthians 12, there's a number of spiritual gifts that are listed. And he, the Holy Spirit gives them to each one just as he determines. Three of those gifts among others, are a gift of knowledge, a gift of wisdom, and prophecy. And what Jesus says here in verse 38 is an example of those three put together. In a very simple way of explaining it, a word of knowledge or a message of knowledge is to know something that could have only been known by God revealing it to you. And a word of wisdom 
is knowing how to take that word and where to apply it or whether to, ap to apply it or maybe just to keep it for yourself and pray about it. But if he asks you to say it out loud, it's a prophetic word when you speak it out loud. Jesus, of course, does all three of those perfectly because he's perfect. Those same spiritual gifts get a little bit messy when what? When people practice them, it gets a little bit messier because we're not perfect. I want to give you two examples of exactly those same three gifts applied in our lives right here. Current day examples. One of them is really good and one of them is bad. Give you the good news first. Sheila and I met with a small group of people right here in this church to pray together. And that particular day, I was very troubled about someone that I had met earlier that day who desperately needed our prayers. And I didn't think anybody in that small group would know who I was talking about, but I still did not mention their names. I just wanted to pray about that situation. And we prayed about that very earnestly. Moments later, one of the ladies in the group said she had a name stuck in her head that she could, just couldn't get rid of. And she just quietly said it out loud. It's one of those names that if you saw it written on a piece of paper, there's at least three different ways to pronounce it. Well, not only did she say the exact name of the person that we were praying for, but she said it with the pronunciation exactly how they pronounced their name. And she has no idea who that person is. That's just a little example of how a word of knowledge applied together with wisdom and then just, in that case, just very gently spoken out loud is very powerful prophetically. It was such an encouragement to the group. Not because something new had been introduced. Because, but because something old was confirmed. You know what was confirmed? Scripture was confirmed. Because Scripture says that Jesus knows his sheep by name. John 10, 3. Scripture says that he hears our prayers. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Scripture says that Jesus is interceding along with us, Romans 8.34. When, when that name was spoken, those things were confirmed, and we recognized the Lord was interceding with us. That's encouraging. Ready for example number two? <laughs> love to be, well, sometimes I'm tempted to want to be the kind of pastor that can only deliver the good stories. Some time ago, Sheila received what she recognized as a word of knowledge from the Lord 
a very clear and obvious one, about a promise for a certain married couple, and she told me about it. Sometime later, we got together with that couple, and they began to share a concern of theirs with us. And their concern lined up exactly with the word of knowledge that Sheila had already received. And we knew it's the Lord. However, we made the assumption that we should share it right in the moment. And that didn't take very long to be actually become very damaging. Because for whatever reason, it never got fulfilled. Does that mean that Sheila heard wrong? No, it doesn't. Sometimes God reveals things to people so that they'll know how to pray for situations or perhaps he gives them a word of knowledge so that they will know a warning or something to watch for. Our mistake was in applying the wisdom and speaking it at the wrong time or maybe that we even spoke it at all. In case you question whether God would do something like that, you can just read, I think it's in Jeremiah 18, verse 8 to 10. I better double check. Helps if you hold your Bible the right way. Just so you know what I mean. It is Jeremiah 18, 8 to 10. You can research that on your own when you're at home, but sometimes this is what happens. God will actually promise a blessing, but based on people's behavior, and for whatever other reason, he might actually withdraw. Perhaps if there is sin or something like that. And other times when he is promising that he is going to bring discipline to correct. But if there is repentance, he also can withdraw. And I think sometimes just recognizing that that's going on and we don't always see that just because we have a word of knowledge doesn't mean or it does mean that we need to practice wisdom before we just go and shoot it out there. So recognizing in this story about Sheila and myself, does it mean that we should ignore spiritual gifts like prophecy, which the Bible commands us to eagerly desire? Based on scripture, that's a fairly easy question because it commands us to eagerly desire them. But it's not hard to see that in this case, it was actually hurtful. What it means is that we should eagerly desire those spiritual gifts and recognize that even when God reveals something to us, we need incredible humility before the Lord, being careful to apply it as he wants us to. And at the same time, have the grace for others who are also imperfect as they do their best, recognizing that they're going to make mistakes too. That's why the Bible is so clear 
that anyone hearing a word of prophecy must weigh very carefully what is said. What comes after the salad? Let's call it a bowl of soup because this is a seven-course meal. I don't even know what all the courses are. We're just going to have, it's going to be, a, it, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be the best soup you ever had. Jesus continues in this Bible passage to talk about heaven. And I want you to think about one of the things that he says. John 14, verse 3. Look what he says. He says, I'm going to come back, I will come back and take you to be with me. That you also may be where I am. Do you realize that Jesus loves you so much that he is preparing a place for you in eternity and he wants you to be with him. He wants to be with his people in a very real way. He wants to live among his people. And that lines up with a host of scriptures. But if you have any appreciation for the self-sacrificing love of Jesus, it is a very exciting thing to anticipate the day when we will see him in his full glory. We will get to know him fully on that day. Of course, Jesus continues through this famous passage of Scripture and again indicates that there is no other name through which we must be saved. There's no other way to salvation other than through Jesus Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through Him. Of course, that confirms what we talked about last week. That the Trinity is inseparable. And again, if you did not hear that sermon, you should go back and listen to it. Because it's foundational for what we're talking about. What comes after the soup? Breadsticks? Maybe one of these steaming loaves of bread that you get to break into the four corners and it's kind of steaming and you get to slather some butter on there. This is going to be good. <laughs> Look at what he says in John 14. This will require a little bit of careful interpretation. Believe me, when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. The same word works is used in verse 11 and verse 12 refers not only to the miracles of Jesus, but to his overall ministry, including his miracles, but also his life of love and servanthood and teaching. And you might be thinking, what? How are we ever going to do greater works than Jesus? How is that possible? First of all, just to be super clear, Jesus is not expecting 
that we are ever going to deviate from his teaching. Secondly, in case you think that maybe this is just uh, applying to a select few believers, maybe the apostles or something, whatever Jesus means in verse 12, it's clear that it's for who? Whoever believes, everybody who believes, that's who this verse is for. What this means is that whoever believes in Jesus will not do miracles of a bigger impact than Jesus' miracles or that somehow they're going to love better or teach better than Jesus did. That would be impossible. But rather, Jesus designed the body of the church in such a way that his spirit would distribute spiritual gifts all throughout his body and collectively they would go all throughout the world and accomplish little reflections of Jesus in thousands or maybe even millions of situations all at the same time through his spiritual gifts while Jesus, when he walked on the earth, was limited to only being in one place at one time. Let me explain that a little bit more using a passage like Ephesians 4, 4 to 16, okay? I'm not going to read the passage, but the passage, that particular passage, talks about five different gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, which is pastors, and teachers. Was Jesus any of those five Yes, he was all of them in perfection. He was the ultimate apostle, the ultimate prophet. He was the ultimate evangelist, the ultimate shepherd. And you could never have a better teacher. The Bible calls us the church. It calls the church the body of Christ. And each believer is a part of it. So if we are the body of Christ, then it's not very surprising that we would reflect these same aspects of Jesus' ministry. He gives one believer this gift, he gives another believer that gift, and when put together, his church becomes the fullness of Jesus in the world. And in that sense, we get to do even greater things than they did. Does that not fill you with a little bit of a sense of awe? That Jesus would invite you to that? Come on, tell me that's not the best breadsticks you ever ate. <laughs> what comes after breadsticks? I don't even know. Main course? Steak? Let's call it a ribeye. Did you know that you can get a Chicago-style ribeye? You try it sometime. I think this will be even better than that. Look at what Jesus says. In John 14, verse 13, this is a loaded statement. He said, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. 
this does not mean that if you just throw on the words in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer that bang, whatever you prayed is going to be done. Because it is not a formula. It's not something that we chant like magic. It is very okay to pray those words and say those words even at the end of your prayer. That's fine. It's great. I do that often. But it's not about chanting those words because otherwise, if that was all it was, otherwise you could just say, um, I would like a silver briefcase with a million dollars in cash right now in this stage in Jesus' name. Boom. But it didn't happen. Because it's not a magic formula. To pray in Jesus' name, uh, in, in, to pray in Jesus' name means to pray in alignment with his will, according to his will, according to his character, and with his authority. We can expect circumstances to change and miraculous things to happen when we pray with his authority. But we must make sure that what we desire lines up with his character, such as his love, but not forgetting about his truth or forgetting about his righteousness, coupled together with the focus on his eternal kingdom. Additionally, we will, he promises, we will get whatever we ask when it lines up with his will. It's a little bit like Jesus is saying, always check your motives to see if they line up with my character and never stop praying with my authority I've given you because in that place you can have whatever I want. That, of course, is going to require that we are constantly abiding and remaining in Jesus. It will be difficult to impossible to get to that place if all you do is hear some words on Sunday morning and then you wait a whole seven days before you hear a few more words. What comes after the ribeye? Potatoes? Is that what someone said? Well, then these better be garlic mashed potatoes because this is, this is going to be pretty heavy and this is going to be pretty good. So here we go. Maybe this is even the dessert. John 14, verse 16 and 17. Jesus makes an incredibly powerful, life-transforming statement. And he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Let's break this down a little bit. Who does the name or the word advocate refer to? The Holy Spirit. And to be an advocate, I asked this question this morning and I actually had some people who knew the answer. I can remember exactly my dad standing over there on that stage, which is now our foyer, preaching about exactly this verse and talking about our advocate. And then he would go into which language to explain what advocate means. 
French. Exactly right. I knew there was going to be people that remember that. I'm not going to bother trying to go into French because I'll be even worse with my uh, pronunciation than my dad was. But anyway, to be an advocate means to be one who pleads your case just like a lawyer would do if you hired a lawyer to represent you in court. That's what it means the Holy Spirit is doing that for you. Isn't that pretty exciting? He wants your best interests. And here's something else that's very interesting. Just in front of that word advocate, what's the word? Another. Hmm. What does that word mean? You don't have to go to French for this one. This is pretty easy. Yeah, I think you guys got it, right? Because if you have, if you're holding something in your hand and I give you another one, what did I just give you? <laughs> you guys are good. I think we're tracking on the same wavelength. I gave you another one, so now you have two of what you already had. The Holy Spirit is an advocate who pleads our case. Who is the other advocate who pleads our case? Jesus. 1 John 2 verse 1 says exactly that. But if anyone does sin, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This confirms what we learned last week, that you should, you would be very amiss to say on one hand, oh, I really love Jesus, and then on this hand to say, but I'm a bit skeptical about the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is an advocate like Jesus. He is in your corner and he wants the best for you just as much as Jesus does. And I had to shorten the verse a bit, and that's why all the dots are there to fill in the blanks kind of thing, the, the, the verse from uh, John 14. But the answer is there. How long will the advocate, the Holy Spirit, be with believers? How long? forever. This is not something that changes with time. That is something that God established and it remains forever. And do you remember that on September 12, in part 21, we talked about how Jesus said that his sheep would know him. Jesus said his sheep would know him and there's a Greek word for know that is actually pronounced Gnosko. You guys are good. Gnosko, that word know, which is exactly this word here in, in John, that says this is how we know the Holy Spirit, means to gain knowledge, not just through information, but through personal experience. The word gnosko is used in Luke 134, when Mary was questioning how she would become pregnant since she did not know or gnosko a man. 
and in that case very obviously refers to a personal experience. Of course, to clarify, gnosko does not refer to sexual intimacy, but it does mean to learn and gain knowledge through first-hand personal experience. And John 10.15, which we talked about in part 21, says that we can know Jesus that way. And John 14.17, right here, says that we can know the Holy Spirit in the same way, experientially. But, but what? But many of us including myself, are skeptical of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you heard a bad story about speaking in tongues. Or you know someone who is pretending to be inspired by the Holy Spirit when really they weren't. And maybe the things or workings of the Holy Spirit seem a little bit scary or messy. And we prefer to have things neat and tidy and measurable. Kind of like gravestones in a graveyard. Very neat and tidy, but not much life there. If we slip into that kind of a rut, we're going to miss out on two things primarily. We're going to miss out on a closeness with God and His empowerment. Let's talk a little bit about that closeness. To understand this, we need to know what the word Abba, Abba Father means. Abba, in its simplest explanation, is an Aramaic word that means father, but in a closer sense. Like daddy. Can you imagine the difference between a child that stands and says, that's my dad, or that's my father. That's what he says. He knows his father. Contrast that to that same father walking in the door after work and a little kid runs to him and he wraps his arms around his leg and says, Daddy! That's the difference. We sang about embracing the Lord just a few minutes ago. It is common knowledge in the New Testament that we as believers are slaves or bond servants to Jesus. He is our master. Traditional Jewish teaching would say that a slave of a master was permitted to refer to their master as father but they were not allowed to call him Abba. That was only reserved for children of the, the master. 
Paul, in his letters, uses this word two times to explain how it works. And both times, he connects this term with what enables us as believers to go from not only being slaves and bondservants, but to being children of the Master. And both times, Paul says it is through the Holy Spirit which we cry out to God as Abba, Father. There's only one other time in Scripture that that word Abba, Father, is used. And that's when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood for you and me. Thanks to the Holy Spirit of Jesus who lives in us, we have the opportunity to experience a closeness with God that allows us not only to be His servants, but to be His children and actually call Him Abba, Father. The kind of closeness that Jesus would have known. That is something that should not be taken for granted or ignored. And because that closeness, and Paul explains this well in those passages, because that closeness comes through the Holy Spirit, if we are skeptical or quench the Holy Spirit, our Christianity will be religious, but lack in relationship. Let's talk a little bit about empowerment. Again, it's common knowledge in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to each believer just as he determines. The problem is that we're able to grieve, quench, resist, or fall out of step with the Holy Spirit. And in order to recover from that, not only should we repent, but the, the scriptures actually exhort us, strongly urge us, to be filled with the Holy Spirit regularly and to desire His spiritual gifts eagerly. Which is why Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, he said he could hardly wait till he got to see them in person. Do you know why? Because he longed to be able to impart to them some kind of a spiritual gift to make them strong. I wonder if we as a church have not slipped into a way of thinking that we're trying to accomplish what we read in verse 12, the greater things than these. If we're trying to accomplish those things on our own, apart from Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And then we wonder why it's not working as effectively as it should. The spiritual gifts that Jesus lays out in Scripture are not just for show. They're not just for fun. They're not just for crazy Christians. They're an extension of Jesus for our good and for His glory. You cannot be who God intended for you to be 
without depending on the Holy Spirit of Jesus in an intentional way. You cannot be the husband or wife that God wants you to be without depending on Him. You cannot be the dad or the mom, the employer or the employee. You can't be the student or leader or witness, testimony, pastor, elder, or prayer warrior without dependence on the Holy Spirit and His gift. And Christians who embrace this empowerment and this closeness with God through the Holy Spirit have a vibrancy and a life in Jesus. But, if you're like me, we often think, <laughs> and we, we hear those words, and then we just whoop, revert back because the rut's pretty deep. We often think of people who have abused the spiritual gifts. And then we revert back to working on just not doing the don'ts and maybe growing in God's character without practicing the gift. Those are not bad things to do, by the way. But we avoid the gift. So I want to give you guys a really simple example and it is an imperfect example. I want you to understand that I realize this. Okay? But it helps me to understand a little bit of how this works together. And I think it might help you as well. Would you allow me to show you? Perfect. That's enough. That's the majority. That's good enough. I don't need everybody. So, here's a, wa here's a water pipe. Okay? I love simple examples. That's how my brain works. This water pipe represents the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Name one. Name one fruit. Love. This pipe represents fruit of the Spirit, the character of God, like love, or like patience, or kindness, gentleness, self-control. Then there's water that should be coming out of the pipe, and that water is the spiritual gifts. I'll go like that so you guys can see that. Spiritual gifts are things like what? They're spiritual gifts of teaching, serving, prophecy, miracles, faith, evangelism, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Those are all spiritual gifts. Encouraging. Two problems. One is this. Sometimes people get so excited about practicing the spiritual gifts and they put them into practice but I don't know if you notice on that pipe there what do you notice? There's a big crack there. There's even a hole. 
And when people put those into practice with broken character, water sprays everywhere. And it is not as life-giving as it should be. In fact, sometimes people get hurt. Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for exactly that. And in that case, he was using the character of love and the gift of tongues. And he said, if you practice tongues but don't have love, you're only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. There is water spraying everywhere and someone's going to get either annoyed or hurt. Maybe even disillusioned. That's problem number one. The second problem is this. Sometimes people see that mess, or in all reality, let's be real, we've just heard about someone else who saw the mess, and then we hear about it. But we see that mess, and we determine that we are going to avoid that mess at all costs. And so what do we do? This is what we do. We just make sure that's never going to happen to us. And we quench the Holy Spirit. How sad would it be to have access to this life-giving flow of water, but then to quench, to quench it and just turn the tap off? Because you can have a pipe that is in solid, solid repair. It doesn't even have to be a cheap SCED 40 PVC pipe. You might have a brass pipe or something that is just solid and good repair. But how sad would it be if there's no water coming out of the end of that? So let me tell you a little bit about Open the Door. On Saturday, November 27, right here in this church, from 6 o'clock till 10 o'clock in the evening, we're going to set time aside to do something. Here's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. And if you're wondering why we would call it Open the Door or what I would even mean with that, you can read those verses, those scripture references. And by the way, if you already know that you'd like to come, you can send me an email, and there's going to be more instructions about that in the next coming up weeks, but it's on November 27th. But here's what I want to say. We cannot force the water to flow in that pipe. That is up to the Lord. We literally have nothing to do with that. But what we can do is open the valve. We can open the door. We can open the door to engage with the Holy Spirit, to get to know Abba, Father, to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit of Jesus, together with the people that you see every Sunday. You know what I think? 
I think that even if Jesus and the Holy Spirit, even if they determined that there was not going to be a drop of water flowing in that place, that's up to him to determine. I know what the scripture says, and I know what it promises. And I would expect those things to happen, but even if it didn't, for whatever reason he would choose, wouldn't I really worship and serve him well by making sure that the door is open? The life-giving nature of the Spirit coupled together with character is incredibly life-giving and transforms lives. This isn't going to be just a one-time event, but this will be part of a journey towards knowing the Lord. It's part of a journey towards gnoscoing Jesus. I can tell you already, I can assure you with this, it will be done in an orderly way with lots of biblical teaching and explanation and then in great humility opening the door. And you can expect humility will be required. That makes you nervous. You should just research that and see what the Bible says. See what Jesus promises to those who are humble. Let me just close with this question. It's just a thought-provoking question. Would we be humble enough to allow water to flow from this water pipe that we have in our lives? To allow, would we be humble enough to let water flow and at the same time have the grace that is necessary that if someone has a crack in their pipe, which of course we all do, because only Jesus is perfect, that we would recognize that it's their broken character that made the mess and not the Holy Spirit. Why don't you just join me in prayer? Jesus, I pray that you would forgive me for putting, when I see a mess, Lord, to have ever put that blame on you, Holy Spirit. When it's really broken character, maybe just a sign of sin, that that mess occurs. Jesus, I pray that you would Lord, we're just hungry, and we come. And I think about so many of your promises in Scripture. And yet we cannot force those promises to happen. But what we can do is come. Help us to be open to doing our part. We love you, Jesus. Amen.